Welcome to the Cut It Straight Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Nate Whitley. Cut It Straight is a podcast helping you pursue excellence in your preaching and ministry. Welcome to the Cut It Straight Podcast, episode 22. I'm your host, Pastor Nate Whitley. This is a special edition Cut It Straight today where I get to share with you an interview that I did uh, with Pastor J.H. Osborne. Uh, Brother Osborne pastors a great church uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana. He is a world-renowned speaker and preacher, uh, very high demand. Uh, He's been a a good friend of mine for many years, has been an influence on me and my ministry and my family. Uh, He was in town last week preaching uh, the evening services of the Tri-State District uh, Camp Meeting, and he graciously took time out of his busy schedule last week uh, to meet with me and do this interview just for the listeners of the Cut It Straight podcast. Now, I did this interview uh, in the hotel lobby, so there's some background noise and there's some uh, fluctuations in the volume, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn the volume up, get your notebook, get your pen, your pencil, and I want you to take notes and listen to the great, great information that Pastor Osborne offers to all of our young ministers. I hope you enjoy this interview with Pastor J.H. Osborne. Pastor Osborne begins by talking about entering into the ministry and the great responsibility that we have as ministers of the gospel. It begins, in my heart at least, uh, James 3 and 1 states, My brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Something you would need to understand when you begin ministry, being a master, being a teacher, being someone who sits at the head of the class, that along with that position, along with that responsibility and obligation, comes a greater condemnation. So the warning is, don't be many masters. Knowing you need to know this, This is something you need to be assured of, that you will receive a greater condemnation. It is biblical that the master has greater condemnation than the students. He's the teacher. They are there to learn. So the teacher must understand that if there's any criticism given, a condemnation, that will go to him. There will be greater reproof on your life, a greater guilt, greater judgment, and greater punishment for the mistakes and the errors that you may make. And so the warning gate comes across the path of ministry saying, know this, going into this, that there will be greater condemnation heaped on you than on anyone you should ever preach to, any congregation, any student council, any class that you may teach, any ministry that you may do to other people. You fully must understand criticism and condemnation will be greater on you than it will ever be on anyone else that you may 
deal with. If you remember Moses, the perfect example of the greater condemnation is that when God told him to speak to the rock, as you well remember, and he smote the rock in, in disobedience to God. And the Lord said to him, because you did not sanctify me in the eyes of Israel, you're not going over. Now, if he had not sanctified God in God's own eyes, God perhaps could have taken him out behind the shed and given him a good whipping. But it wasn't his eyes that were important here. It was the eyes of Israel. And I want to remind you that the most important eyes that are upon you are not just God's, but Israel's eyes, your congregation's eyes, people you're teaching. Their eyes are watching you. And you need to sanctify God in their eyes. They have to see your life, see how you behave yourself. Let's listen as Pastor Osborne continues to talk about the greater condemnation for ministers. Because greater condemnation is heaped on you. Because the people that you're teaching can make a mistake and get all kinds of forgiveness ready for them. But when the preacher makes a mistake, an error that does not sanctify God in their eyes. It's not about turtle doves and pigeons and heifers and heathens. It's about maybe you're not going over. You know, that's the greater condemnation to me. Uh, but it's so dangerous when you, when you step into this. He says, knowing this, you need to understand this from the beginning. There's consequences for your behavior that far exceeds the consequences of any student's behavior because you've taken that position of being master. So I think everyone should know that the consequences for disobedience are much greater upon the teacher, the preacher, the minister, than it is on the congregation. Next, I asked Pastor Osborne about personal expectations in ministry. Well, first of all, don't become a prisoner of other people's expectations. You know, you can pick out somebody that you like, somebody that you uh, enjoy listening to, but you can become a prisoner of that trying to emulate someone else and be like they are, you know. We don't need another one of them. That position's already been taken by them. And so you need to let God shape your life and form your life. See, we need a we need a we need a generation that can preach to a generation. You can't recall David. You can preach about David, but 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 you and I both know he's killed that giant ten thousand times in our lives. You preach about he only killed it one and did it one time. <laughs> We keep rehearsing that over and over again because it's something we need to understand that we can do it in our lives. But just talking about killing Goliath and reaccounting re 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 that is of no value to people unless you're willing to kill one yourself. And so you can't become a prisoner of other people's expectations. Sometimes parents influence you. And it's nothing wrong with you being the son of a preacher or your dad was a minister, your grandfather, whatever. You've come along and you've been exposed to that. But you can't become a prisoner of that. Uh, uh, you know, every man's gift is given according to his several ability. People have an ability, and according to the several abilities or different abilities that we may have, then God chooses you for, for a particular position. 
Because it's a miserable place when you get when you get out of order. You get someplace where God has not called you to. There's a verse of scripture that, that you know, when, when uh, 2 Samuel said to come to pass when David was come to the top of the mount and he worshiped God and beheld Hushai and Archai come to meet him with a coat rent earth upon their head. And to David, he said, if thou pass on with me, thou shalt be a burden to me. If thou return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto. Hither shall I so be thy servant, then mayest thou may defeat the council of Hithophel. These men wanted to join David, and David said, if you come with me, you're a burden to me. i got to feed you, i got to house you, i got to take care of you, you know. You're just a burden if you come to me. You know, a man out of place in a wrong position that he's never called to do uh, will be a burden. It's not just you're in a place that you can't do your job. It's now you're a burden to the purpose and the calling of God that has on that particular institution, that church, that classroom. You know, some people are called to this, some people are called to that. We have several abilities, you know. So misplacement leads to discontent. And discontent leads to instability. And, and which leads to rootlessness because you're here and then you're there. Well, I can't find my place here. I can't find my place there. And, and so when you're rootless, that leads to shallowness, which leads to backsliding. So a man or a boy, and a girl gets in the wrong place to, to where you want to be somewhere. You want to be this, you want to be that. It's not want to be. You need to find out what God's called you to. And, and, or other, other than that, you will be out of place. And out of place becomes a burden to the entire process of what's trying to be accomplished. And you will be discontent. You will never be happy. And, and that leads to instability. You can't be unhappy and stable. You know, which leads to rootlessness because you, you, you can't stay in any one place because they can't use you there and you can't use you there. I've known people who wanted to preach and, you know, they just, it was, it, they were not given to that. They did not have that gift, that calling. There's something about the oneness of everything that God does. And I can talk about this for a while, but, you know, it's, in the book of Ephesians, it says, but everyone, it, it talks about there's, there's one body, there's one spirit, even your call and one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, there's one faith, one baptism. The God and Father of all who is above all, through all, in you all. But, it's a conjunctive word, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. When God gives you a gift, he gives you a measure of grace to operate that gift. Now, if you go in the gift room and you pick up a, a big gift, a bigger gift than God's going to give you grace to use. You'll be miserable all your life. You'll be a failure. You're, the amount of grace he gives you is according to the measure of the gift he's given you. That is the unmerited favor of God. If, if you want God to smile on your life, don't be picking up a big gift when you're only getting a little grace. Because you want to be a missionary to, to Africa, it's going to take a different measure of grace to do that than it is to teach in your local church, you know, or teach a Sunday school class or what have you. So, when you look at the gift God's given you, don't pick up a bigger gift than you have grace to use. Because mm -hmm. if God doesn't give you the grace to use that, you'll be a failure in it, you'll right. be discontent, and you'll be home in a few weeks discouraged, thinking, well, I couldn't do it. Because if you're going to be a church planter, it takes a measure of grace for that gift. If you're going to be an assistant pastor in a church, it takes a measure of grace for that gift. Now, it's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but it's not one grace. There's a measure of grace right. according to the gift. Right. So if God gives you a gift to pastor, that will take a certain measure of grace. And there have been men who wanted to pastor but did not have the grace to do that, the, the favor of God upon their lives. So you just have to remember to be sure that the gift that you're trying to exercise, that God will give you the equal amount of grace to exercise that so you won't be a failure or, 
or give up or surrender or give into the things in your life. So there's a plan and a purpose for every man's life. And uh, you can, you, it's, it's one spirit, one body, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, but, but a conjunctive word, the previous statement cannot stand alone. There's another precept to complete the thought. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift. So whatever gift you have, whatever gift you feel like God's calling you to do, he will give you that measure of grace to operate that gift. And if, you get, if you pick up a bigger gift, then God will give you grace to be miserable in your life. I hope you're enjoying this special edition of the Cut It Straight podcast, our interview with Pastor J.H. Osborne. Recently, Pastor Osborne shared with me some insights about the lives and ministries of Elijah and Elisha. I hope you enjoy as he shares this with you on the Cut It Straight podcast. Elijah was like a one-man band. You know, he had like cymbals on his head. He had <laughs> tambourines between his knees and he's got, he's playing a flute and he, he can do anything he is, he is a he is a one man operation you know if you wanted meal barrels filled you wanted dead sons raised you wanted fire called down out of heaven you wanted 450 prophets of Baal killed he was your man you know dead raised whatever you needed in the miraculous the supernatural the unbelievable you know you could he could build his altars he could offer up his sacrifices he could fill them fill them the altar full of water and, and, and pour water all over it, you know. He called fire down to heaven. It's not a big deal for him. He signs wonders and miracles. But then when, when he got that note from, from Jezebel that she was after him and going to kill him, he went over and sat down under a juniper tree. He's a pathetic picture, really. Uh, but he was worn down. I get it. He was worn down. He is, he's tired. He's weary with the journey. And... Uh, uh, the Lord had to fix him a little cake, send an angel down, and he ate it. Then he, he had to fix him another one to eat, I believe. And then he got up and went the strength of that journey and, and journeyed on to a cave. And there in the cave, he said to the Lord, I am not better than all the rest of the prophets. You've killed all the rest of them. They're all dead. You know, I'm the only one you've got left. I'm not better than them, so just kill me. I'm the last person on planet Earth that knows anything about living for God, serving God. I am your man. I am your lone man. I am the lone ranger. Tonto is dead. Everybody around me is gone, you know. I go by the pillars and I go by the funerals and I go by, I've been the funerals of all my friends and I've seen all the tombstones of all the past prophets and priests. I've read about all of them, you know. And he said, I'm the only one you got left. That's a pathetic <laughs> drivel falling from a man who's can do about anything, you know. But he's just beat up and he is down. And his whole viewpoint, his scan of the horizon was that there's no one left but me. Woe is me. I'm all there is. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Elijah, I got 7,000 that have never bowed their knee to Baal. You, you killed 450 of them because you thought you were, get, you were eradicating Baal. I've got 7,000 that have never bowed their knee to Baal. I know you thought Israel was all there was that was there sitting on the fence, halting between two opinions, but they're not all the world. And I have 7,000 on the other side of the mountain over there that are still loving me, serving me, worshiping me, offering sacrifices to me, true to me, have their allegiance to me. And the problem with it was that God had 7,000, but Elijah didn't know any of them. He didn't know one name of one other human being on this planet 
that were still living for God. That's why you need fellowship. You need to be around other men. You need to see that you're not alone in this. Other men are living for God. They're staying true. Let's probably read the headlines and you listen to everything. Not everybody's dead that believe this one is Pentecostal message, you know. They've all gone backslid, what have you. And there are people that get like that because they're loners. And when you become a loner, you get that Elijah uh, attitude about it, that you're the only one there is left. And uh, God has a great church, and he's going to have a church. If he wasn't going to, if you know, God's not going to have less than he left. It would be foolish of God to wait 2,000 years to come back and have less than he had when he started. He should have took them when there were 3,000, or he should have took them when they were multiplying daily. You know, but he waited this time not to come back for less than he left. There's going to be a great number of people who still love God, and you need to know their names. You need to be associated in fellowship with people so you don't get that juniper tree mindset and have to be sent to a cave to have God tell you there are other people living for God beside you. This is the most important part of the interview where Pastor Osborne speaks about the need for a personal revelation of who Jesus Christ is and his gospel. So I really hope you enjoy this very, very important part of the interview. He didn't have nobody to pass it on to. He never, when Elijah died, you know, Elijah died, well, a chariot of fire came down and, and, uh, and took him away. And, uh, uh, but the mantle fell on him. He, he, he was a strange fella, you know, really. Yeah. He was a great man, but he's his hot, hot and cold, you know. And he wasn't much of an inspirer to other, to other men. In fact, you know, he tried to get Elijah to stay every place he went. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I will take you with me. You know, would you stay over here? Would you stay over here? Would you stay over here? And uh, that chariot pulled him away. Uh, but Elijah was altogether different. He... he he wanted to have a school. He wanted prophets. He wanted, you know, like, like you, Brother Willie, he wanted to pass on what he knew, get information to give to young men so they didn't have to scratch. You know, when I, when I got in the ministry, I didn't have a mentor. My pastor died on a Monday. They made me pastor. He died on a Wednesday. They made me pastor on a Sunday. I didn't have a key to the church. I didn't have a, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anyone to help me or tell me or explain anything to me. I wasn't even, I knew what I thought I believed. I believed it because I'd been taught that. I wasn't rooted and grounded to the point that I thought I could explain it, you know. I knew that I'd been taught those things, but being taught those things is not enough, you know. Much of what you will get in life comes by revelation. And until God reveals it to you, I think this is important for young men. You know, you, your daddy can teach you that, and a pastor can tell you that. And, you know, John, the, John, uh, uh, the revelator, he, uh, he, he, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because he was easier to love than Peter. Peter didn't need a lot of love. He was more brash. And, you know, if you have, when, somebody, when you have children, if you have children now, you know, some kids are very clingy. They always want to be around you. They, they don't let go of you. They, they love you. And other kids, you, they can walk out the door and you never see them until it's time to eat. You know, they just don't need a lot of attention. And John needed a lot of attention. He was uh, very clingy. He was always leaning on his breast. In fact, he heard the heartbeat of God before it was ever broken. And he heard the blood gurgle through his veins before it was ever shed. Because he had his head, had his ear to the heart. If you want to know anything that Jesus was doing, ask John, because he knows. You know, Peter didn't know. He was spontaneous. He was always off the wall. But right. he didn't know what was going on most of the time. But John always knew what was going on. In fact, Jesus loved him so much. The Bible said he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not that 
he had a greater capacity to be loved than it was than some of the other disciples. In fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down at John. He said, Mama, I want you to go home with John. Now, Mary had other children. I don't know what they thought. <laughs> Maybe they were planning to take Mama home. Maybe they had a, a mother-in-law quarter. She was all fixed down and got her bed all made. Got, and Jesus said, don't go home with them other kids. <laughs> go home with John because he loved me. So John had a great experience. He got to go home with her and hear all about what it's like to hear the angel's voice say, you're going to have a child. Hear all about Nazareth and raising up of Jesus and how he behaved and how he acted and all about wise men coming in, some shepherds and choirs singing and all of that. John got all of that, you know. He listened to all of that. But you know, he was 80 years old when he sent him to Paris. His old bony leg stepped over the bow of that ship on that rocky crag in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. One of the definitions of Patmos is a killing place. He stepped off of that boat and this is going to be my killing place. And he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And there he wrote the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He didn't write it leaning on his breast. He didn't write it eating multiplied loaves and fishes. He didn't write it. He wrote it in a killing place. That's where he wrote it at, in a place he thought was going to kill him. Because revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't come just by eating multiplied loaves and fishes, seeing signs and wonders, watching him walk on the water, seeing the, the dead raised and the lepers healed and going home with his mother and listening to all the great stories and, and get all the parables explained to you. But that doesn't give you revelation. Teaching will not give you revelation. Teaching will teach you how it really is, but it doesn't reveal it. It doesn't pull the covers off and show it to you. John was 80 years old, and God pulled the covers off and showed John who he really was, and he wrote the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, in fact, when he got, when he, when Ananias came to him, baptized him, the Bible said he, he, he didn't, he, he went to a desert place, and he was in that, he was in a desert place about, maybe over three years, but Paul had a lot of stuff to sort out, you know, he, he, he he had been so contrary to this way. Again, the Holy Ghost goes straight everything out, you know. It'll lead you and guide you into truth, right. but it doesn't give you all the truth. Right. But he went to a desert place, to Arabia, I believe, and he, there he spent those days. Some people think he went there to preach. He wasn't ready to preach. He just got the Holy Ghost, you know. So but he didn't go to Jerusalem because Peter could have taught him that. Some disciples could have set him down and ex right. explained to him how it all worked out. But he had to reconcile. How is he the, he knew the first five books of the Bible and how to apply them to your life. But how is Jesus the the bracing offer? How's he the labor? How's he the how's he the showbread? How's he the seven golden candlesticks? How's he the altar fences? How's he the veil? How's he going to reconcile all this about Jesus and who he was? And because he, when he come back, he said, "I did not get this from men. No man taught me this. No. I got this revelation in a killing place, mm -hmm. in a place of Arabia." And uh, so. So revelation is so important. And, and, and he said to Peter, whom do men say that I son of man am? Some say Elias, some say Jeremiah. Whom say thou son of man? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, blessed art thou, blessed art thou son of our John. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. I can't reveal it to you. I can teach you what is right and teach you. But flesh and blood can teach you, but it takes the spirit of God to reveal it to you. And that revelation comes many times in a killing place. Mm. And you're going to go through something, sir. If you live for God and serve God, if you ever become a minister, work for salt, you will go to a killing place. A th place that you think is going to kill you. Instead of being a killing place, it turns out to be a revealing place. Mm. And your daddy can give that to you. Right. That's why some of you men who have taken their father's churches, 
end up taking them down the wrong way because they never had a revelation. Now their daddy's voice is silent. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a revelation because flesh and blood can't give you revelation. They can teach you but can't give you revelation. So they don't have a revelation. So when their daddy's voice is silent, you find them wandering off the path like going in another direction. Yeah. They start listening to other voices. Yeah. You know, but when you get a revelation of this, of the oneness of right. God, water baptism in Jesus' name, the of the Holy Ghost, you don't just walk away. God has to uncover it to you. Right. And when he does, it will change all the dynamics of your life. Yeah. Next, I asked Pastor Osborne, what are some pitfalls that young ministers and even seasoned ministers could avoid? Well, you know, the Bible said God called me because he counted me faithful. So... In other words, that's what he's counting on is your faithfulness. Not counting on being a genius, not counting on you saving the whole world, but I do count on you being faithful. Yeah. And my mother taught me that. My mother took me to church. And uh, we didn't have a car. We, we took a bus, two buses, in order to get to church. And so she bred that faithfulness into me. I had I went to eight years in, in grade school, and the only award I got at the end of eight years was I never missed a day of school yeah. for eight years. So. She, they made me be faithful you know? and so that's the only attribute I had going with me in the ministry was that I wanted to be faithful and I wanted to be a good pastor but I wasn't sure what that was right. what is a good pastor well, I, mean, I had a pastor but I didn't know whether that I didn't I didn't know what what the ingredients were that you needed to blend into your life to be a good pastor so uh, some of the pitfalls are I didn't know how to study I didn't have good study habits to begin with. You have to develop good study habits. Study takes time, you know. Uh, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, not only just study. Study really is pretty much one dimension. But if you're gonna meditate, you know, you take something in your hand and you roll it around and you look at it from all the different directions. If you had a ballpoint in your hand, you just just look at the ballpoint, the pen maybe is one dimension. But if you start meditating, you start looking at it. You roll it around. You take it apart. You see what kind of refill it's got. You see what color it writes. You know, what's this little thing on the end here? Does it, where, where, do you, where do you get the point to come out of? Do you twist? Do you turn? You know, you meditate on it. And meditation takes time. So, you know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to work or what to do. But here's what I found that probably helped me the most in, in this. And it, 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 it's a pitfall that you have, not of your own doing. But when you're young, you like experience. And, and so, see, the Bible never changes. It stays the same. It's always the same. But you're continually changing. Therefore, every time you come back to the Word of God, it means something different to you because you're not like you were the first time you came to the Word of God. You, know? you look at it one day, it means nothing to you. A week later, it means everything to you. It's a continual evolving in your life and your relationship to the Word of God. I said here at this conference, it's, only, it's not that big really. So when you keep coming back to it, though, because you're not there and because you've never been where you are right now, it means different things to you. You know, now I think I tried to emulate other men. I tried to pick out what I thought was good in them and, and try to incorporate that into my life. You know, but that leads to kind of imitators, you know, and and uh, talking like they talk and behaving like they behave. And I didn't know another way of doing it, though. I didn't know how to study. Actually, this is sad to say, but I had never seen a sermon in my life. I've heard them, but I never saw what it looked like. Yeah. I don't know what's on that page you're preaching from. I don't, I don't, I don't know. So I never went to Bible school. So I didn't have any 
idea of I couldn't walk up to a man and say, let me see your sermon, you know, let yeah. me see your notes. So I kind of had to figure out what worked for me, you know, and pick out some things, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it wasn't so much, I guess, pitfalls for me. It's just ignorance. I was just, I was just, I was just completely ignorant about anything. You know, when they would call and say somebody's sick, I said, what should I do? You know, I don't know what to do. I don't, yeah. Well, you're supposed to go pray for them. You know, well, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't. So I have learned so much about responsibilities and obligations and study habits and and preparing, you know. So I'm not very smart, really. Never got good grades in school, so I'm not very smart. So it takes me a long time to study, you know, because I've developed pretty good study habits now over, you know, after 40 years, you, you know, you either get it or you're, you're never going to get it. You know? So I've got pretty good study habits now, although it takes me a long time. It's not like something that I look and whip it out like nothing, you know, but it takes me a, it takes me a long time to have to sit and think. And my wife will come in and say, can you come and hang this picture? I said, I'm, 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 I'm busy, right? She said, look like you're doing anything. You're just sitting there, you know? But I'm meditating. I'm thinking about this. I'm rolling this around in my mind, see if there's a if there's a clinch in the arm. Is there something I'm missing? Is there something here that's I need to know? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not just thinking about it. I'm, I'm meditating. I'm rolling it around in my thinking to see where I've missed it or what have you, you know? So... Those kinds of things were, were, were all, you know, the whole world's a pitfall to me as far as I didn't know what I was doing. And I can't even, when I look back, I can't even believe, I can't even fathom that a, that a person who was reasonably sane could even take the job, you know, having absolutely zero understanding of what the job entailed, you know. And no one, in that day, no one would share. They were all sermon graveyards, all the preachers were. They wouldn't help you with anything, give you anything, like drop a nugget now and then. There was no handfuls on purpose, you know. They would yeah. say, you know, just get it for yourself, you know. Open your mouth, God will fill it up, that kind of mentality, you know, yeah. which was totally false. I found that out pretty quick. Yeah. Open yeah. my mouth two or three times and nothing but my foot, you know. So <laughs> God didn't fill it up with it. Next, I ask Brother Osborne, who or what are some of the influences that have helped shape your preaching, ministry, or writing? Well, I became more of a storyteller in, in, in my preaching method, I guess, that I used. Um, and I, I, I guess I learned by trial and error, really. I, I, I had men that I, that I liked. Brother Slattery was one, Brother Harry Slattery. Uh, I loved his demeanor. I loved the way he presented. He was a perfect gentleman. He was not overbearing. He was not, um, he was never out of character. He always, but he was kind of a one-man guy. And I, I picked out the thing that I liked about him, but, but I could see he did everything in his church. You know, he would, and I loved Brother Harry Slatter. He was a great friend of mine and, and uh, camaraderie we, I had with him, but he never really told me anything, but I just watched him, how he behaved and how he presented himself and always liked that. You know, he was just tried to emulate him. I didn't have a lot of men in my life because I'd never been to a conference. I'd never, uh, you know, had any close relationship with men. Uh, I didn't like to read necessarily, which I've overcome, but I didn't, I didn't know that you could, you know, I didn't have a concordance or anything, even thought about having a, any kind of commentary or anything. You know, later on, obviously I did, but I, so I've, it's become a more, much more complex issue for me today. Preaching has a very, it's not complicated so much, 
but it entails so much. You know, right. I, I, I take the position. You know, you, you, obviously you have to pray, and because uh, sometimes you you see things inspired you. It's just a sovereign act of God. God puts a thought in your mind. Sometimes you see a need in the church, and sometimes you get a, a, a message that's birthed out of some experience. You know, and it births something in your life. I'm always looking for a message. I'm, I'm looking. Almost 24 hours a day, I'm, I'm trying to see something or something that will spark something. You know? So prayer, obviously, is a principal ingredient in the preparation of a sermon. If a person didn't preach longer than he prayed, most sermons would be around 10, 12 minutes, but he hasn't made. But once God has revealed the, the Word of God, sin becomes a tool of conveyance. How are you going to convey that? And uh, the wise man said he sought out acceptable words. If I get up and preach something, it's not going to be acceptable to those people. It's like apples of gold and pictures of silver. It's got to, you've got to pick out. So you need to increase your vocabulary. Because you have, a, you have a verbal vocabulary. You have a mental vocabulary. And your mental vocabulary is what you think with. And the more words you can think with, the more tools you have to, to contrive and to, and, to, and to construct sentences and thought patterns and what have you. So, you know, uh, so like an artist, if, if a person was a great artist, you know, uh, he got to acquaint himself with the tools of being an artist. It's more than just being able to draw good. You can sketch a horse's head, or you can you can draw a plan. I'm not a drawer. I, I have the stick figures, you know. But but a person that's a real artist, you know, he's got to choose brushes. What kind of brush you going to use? What kind of bristle do you want in the brush? Do you want stable, or do you want a, 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 do you want a, a, a more coarse bristle in the brush? You know, how wide should the brush be? Should it be a, a round brush? Should it be a fan brush? What kind of brush would be better to make this picture? look alive, you know, you got to choose a canvas, do you want a slick canvas or do you want a pebble canvas, you know, you got to learn how to stretch a canvas, you know, you, you got to understand color and shading, and where's the light coming from in this, you know, you got to know what kind of paint you're going to, is this a watercolor, you know, what kind of paint you're going to use to paint this picture with, you got to know proportion, you got to understand background, foreground, what's the focal point of this picture, so it's, preaching is more than just spit and speed, you know, it's more than just getting up and telling everything you know. Some people say, I'm going to preach on faith, they just read every scripture of the Bible on faith, you know. <laughs> you know, pick out a brush, pick out a canvas, where's the light coming from on this? How's your subject, what's your focal point? What do you want the main thought of this to be and everything else kind of peripheral? Just kind of fill in the framework of this, you know. You, you understand foreground and you understand proportion. So that knowledge is over and above your ability and your talent and your skills, you know, to paint. An artist is, you know, and when you're preaching, you're painting a word picture. It's all with words. That's the only means of communication you've got are words. So the more words you understand, you know, and more words you, you acquaint yourself with, the better you are to do your job and be articulate when you do it, you know, and have words to speak with. You listen to some of these football players and basketball players especially. And you listen to them when they do an interview with them. They got about twenty-five or thirty intelligible words. Then they start saying, "Know what I mean? Know what I mean? No, we don't know what you mean because you don't have enough words to explain what you mean. That's why if you don't have a lot of words, folks will look at you and say, "I don't know what you mean," because you, know? yeah. you haven't been able to express yourself because you don't have enough words. You're limited with your words. Right. So you may be able to play basketball or play football or what have you, but in the ministry. Your toolbox is full of words. That's how you're going to convey what's in your heart and what God's revealed to you. So the more words you have, the better ministry you have because you right. can articulate your feelings, your emotions. You put it all into play, but 
You know, if you get up and you don't have any words, it's a sad commentary. You know. <laughs> At the conclusion of our interview, I asked Brother Osborne, what are some habits that a young minister or a seasoned minister could develop to have a successful ministry? I think reading increase your vocabulary because you see how other people construct sentences and how they put things together and how how the, the words flow and uh, because when you're writing you can't get finished and say well, I don't have any idea what it means you know you have to write it in a way that people can understand that and so uh, learning those kinds of behaviors um, myself um, it's uh, it's important to me that I don't do anything that I may one day have to preach against mm-hmm. Because right. that will come back to bite you. Oh, yeah. So don't get up and preach against something, and then somebody finds you doing it. Yeah. And don't even think about doing something that you might someday have to preach against, you know, right. or call somebody in the office for, or talk to right. somebody about it. Because you'll be ashamed. People will pay a bit of attention to you because yeah. they know you did the same thing or you were doing the same thing. Right. I don't care if it's stress. If you're going to ever preach against it, then don't do it. Don't wear it. You know, it, whatever you're, whatever you think someday you might have to preach against it. Yeah. It might not be the day. It might be six months from now. But people have long memories. Oh, you know? yes, and if you're going to preach against it, you had better stay away from it. Cut a wide path around that. You know, yeah. if you even think in the remotest part of your brain, I might have to come against that someday. Yeah. Then you better, you better stay away, far away from that. So in di- I think you mentioned discipline was the most important things in your life. I think to have a disciplined life, to make yourself study. I cannot go out and, and, and horse around all, all Saturday and think I'm going to get up on Sunday morning and God's going to meet me there. God's going to bless my life. Now, if I have to stay in the hospital or I have to be with somebody inside this different program, right. but I am not going to. So you only have so much mental energy. Yeah. So much is all you've got. And if you waste it on doing something outside of church doesn't matter what it is you know you only have so much mental energy mental strength and if you waste that doing something frivolous you won't have enough left to be able to, to preach and be convincing in your ministry so you have to it's like it's like you know how much strength you have physically so you have to save that if you're going to do something else I can't be I can't be if I'm going to have to if I'm going to have to paint the living room I go out and run three miles and come in and get on the uh, and why well, then go do that because I won't have enough strength left. So you have to save your mental energy so that you have enough left on Sunday morning when you're not tired mentally. And discipline your life for that, that I'm saving this for Sunday morning and Sunday night or whatever you may be preaching or teaching or talking or what have you, you know, and being fully prepared for that, you know. The Bible talks about, uh, you know, how to handle the Word of God. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, and you don't handle it deceitfully, you know. The Bible calls the word, refers to the word of God as a seed. Then refers to the word of God. He says, not my word like fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh rocks. So uh, when you when you think about, you said the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. So the word of God is like a sword. It is like a seed. It is like fire. And it is like hammer. So which one of those are you going to use <laughs> yeah. when you get ready to preach? 
would it be better to use a seed? The seed takes a long time to come up. Somebody's just plant a seed, you know. Is it like a sword? But if you get the sword out, somebody's probably going to get hurt. <laughs> There's going to be some blood on the platform when you pull the sword out, you know. Is it like fire? Because some people are just fire. Oh, he's a real fiery preacher. Fire don't work in every sermon. Mm-hmm. Calvary don't need a fiery sermon. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Is it like a hammer? Are you trying to break yokes and bondages off of people? Is that what you're trying to do? Then get a hammer out, you know? Mm-hmm. And use the word of God like a hammer. Right. But sure. your message, which way would it be better to be presented to somebody? Yeah. Seed, sword, hammer, fire. Because the Bible says the word of God is like all those four things. enjoyed this special edition of the cut it straight podcast our interview with jh osborne for more information go to my website nswhitley.com go to itunes and subscribe to the cut it straight podcast follow me on twitter at nswhitley and i'll see you next time on the cut it straight podcast